Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm a park ranger in the United States government, and I deal with a lot of strange things. In fact, just this last week, my dispatch got a call from a woman who was hiking along with her boyfriend. They had seen something they could not explain along the Grizzly Ridge Trail. She described it as an animal that was bipedal, walking on two legs. They were able to see its arms and legs, but they reported it did not have a tail or any fur. I never heard of anything like that before, so I was called out to investigate this sighting myself. Well, I found something all right. I saw something walking across the stream with one leg in the air, almost like it was kind of walking weirdly. It would take these giant strides with one leg in the air, followed by the other, almost like it was bounding across the stream. Maybe it was a coyote at first, but everything about this just did not look right. The reason why I thought this was due to the very wolf-like appearance of the head and eyes that appeared to almost glow in the moonlight. It was roughly six to seven feet tall, if I remember right. It was pretty dark. I thought I was seeing things at first, but after making sure this thing was real, I pulled out my Jetty 22 and shot at it. The thing did not even flinch. I tried to aim for its heart or lungs, but the rounds just seemed to bounce off its body. My first thought was this, had to be some sort of military experiment gone wrong. 
The thing just stared at me, but it left after that. I'm not ashamed to admit that I was too afraid to go back into the woods for days after, even though it's my job. This month, things have been really crazy around here. Even animal control had been called out to deal with a pack of canines or something in the park. Ever since mid-June, they would be hunting livestock all over town, and now they've entered here. I just can't get what I saw out of my head, though. It haunts me every minute of the day. Up until now, these strange things had only seemed to be isolated. But were they? Now, I'm hearing reports of these things happening and popping up everywhere. Maybe there's a connection. Bigfoot. The following true story about the Oregon wilderness was told to me by Jim, my aunt's friend, avid hiker and hunter, so I don't remember much of the details. His stories all had basically one particular conclusion, presence of something intelligent in surrounding wilderness. Jim used to hike just like my grandpa, with one little exception that my grandpa was a professional backpacker back in the USSR, which is going to be of some significance later and he traveled with a group and some firearms. Jim used to go all alone in the wilderness with a firearm as well. Jim's encounters have never ended in particular meeting with an entity, but usually in a form of traces, broken branches, distant howling and roaring, and a feeling that he was being watched, which he actually dismissed as his natural instinctive reaction to unfamiliar environment and vast possibilities. Bears, wolves, moose, all could be around. Except for one such encounter. I don't remember what area he was telling me exactly about, but I'm pretty sure it was one of those rogue river forests in Oregon. So as usual, he left his car at the parking lot and continued afoot. I think he planned for three days, but I'm not sure. Anyway, closer to the dusk, Jim found a place for him to stop. He prepared his dinner using a portable stove, got into his tent and sleeping bag. He then fell asleep. He couldn't recall when it happened, but it was already dark outside except for the moon shining over the nearby top, but Jim didn't know that yet. Jim woke up to loud banging noises that appeared to be wood, on wood knocking, but it was so loud he couldn't hear his own commotion as he was pulling the sleeping bag, forcing himself out of it, then pulling the rifle and sending a round into the chamber. He called out once, twice, thrice. At that point, he was frightened. The banging never stopped. He poked his rifle out of the tent and squeezed the trigger. Flash illuminated the outside of the tent. The bang followed, and then silence. From what I remember, it was kind of a deafening silence for him. Blood was pulsing in his ears. He was blushing and almost had a vertigo. He also was startled by his own rifle as everything happened so quick he never adapted to the situation. It was silent for not long, but for him, it was almost forever. Did I just kill someone? And then roaring and sound of breaking branches not far away. He was so scared and confused he was contemplating whether he should stay inside and wait with a rifle or go outside and pursue the intruder. Jim forced himself out of the tent, screaming, You mother F! Leave me alone! I'll shoot you! There was nothing outside. His eyes just started to get used to the darkness, and within a minute he noticed that a spruce not so far away from him, maybe in a distance of a clear shot, 
started to swing from one side to another like if there was something on top of it forcing the tree to break down. It was like that for quite some time, and then it stopped. Jim decided to get inside and wait for sunrise, which he did, and then he quickly grabbed everything he had and made all the way back to the parking lot as fast as he could, and never stopped for longer than enough to catch a breath. As for my grandpa, he was much younger at the time he was hiking and kayaking back to civilization with his group in the Urals. They spent weeks in wilderness, occasionally encountering foresters' cabins or entire villages of the local population called Mansi. They would usually trade something for food, usually alcohol, which was the most valuable product for Mansi, and they would direct them not to go into certain areas deemed cursed or sacred. My grandpa never was a communist, a member of the Communist Party, which was a reason why he was never considered for promotion. He was the deputy director of aerodynamic lab at one of the Soviet's mechanical engineering centers, busy with nautical ballistic missiles for submarines. But he sure was atheist. So they would only smirk and do whatever they want. And even then they would encounter some weird shit. I was amazed just how similar Jim's story was to one of my grandpa's stories. I was digging through my grandfather's things a while ago and came upon this report that I thought was very intriguing. This is a report from a soldier located in Falk, Arkansas. He had encountered what he can describe as the Boggy Creek Monster during a shift at night. This is his account, the date unknown. The report was given around 1930 at approximately 20. One hours, our guard posted the usual two men. Shortly after I took over watch, I heard something off the path moving towards me that was large. Thinking it was my relief, I challenged him by name and ordered him to halt, but instead of stopping, this man broke into a run. I then took pursuit, firing several shots at him with my rifle, in order for him to stop, not directly at him, but around him. He apparently was not hit and disappeared into the darkness. I could hear something running away ahead of me for the time but it soon ceased its noise. I did not see a man or dog, although it might have been a bear going through the underbrush. This would happen over the following nights, and the sentries would each time fire at it, but to no avail. We were never able to catch up with this man, like creature, but it was certainly not a bear. But I cannot say what it is. Maybe some of the wild men from the hills. I know nothing more about this matter except that I never hoped to encounter it again. It sounds to me like this soldier had encountered the Boggy Creek Monster. My stepdad lived in Virginia when he was around the age of eight, right on the edge of the Great Dismal Swamp. According to him, he was in bed one night when the sky was cloudless, or just very bright. He never thought until recently whether the moon was shining or not and saw a beast looking right through his window at him. He said it he could see spittle running down its face, and its eyes were looking straight at him. It was supposedly standing on its hind legs, and had cream, red, and brown-colored matted fur, and a face almost like a wolf. Other than its snout, its facial features were very human. Its jawbones were high, 
The structure around its eyes and its eyes themselves were human. Esquire. The coloring of its eyes, he believes, were yellow. The reason why I think this is interesting and possibly valid is because the great dismal swamp covers a huge amount of territory and is hardly touched by humans. Only in recent years have people started to study its inhabitants. The grounds are wet, mossy, and absorb sound. And people have been known to wander into it and never return. Who knows what could be lurking in the unknown? Chills my bones. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that he crawled out of his bed and went straight to his mother's room. In the morning when they looked around the house, all the windows had ground that was stirred up under them and grass that was yanked out. There were actual scratches in the wood under his window and paint was missing too. However, as far as they could see, there were no discernible footprints. One morning around 6 a.m. about two years ago, I was living not far from Washington, D.C. A friend of a friend needed a roommate to afford the rent for an apartment he had found. So when I was told about this, my first thought was, Oh, yeah, here's my chance to move out of my parents' house. After about six months of living in the area, I noticed that on certain nights I would hear loud roars in the distance. I could never tell how far away the noise was coming from. It would sometimes sound nearby or just far enough away where I wouldn't mind being outside to see what it might be making the sound from a safe distance. I lived in a quiet, wooded area. A lot of people lived in the area. I actually lived within five minutes walking distance away from the University of Maryland. One morning around 6 a.m., I just snapped awake from a deep, sound sleep for no reason at all. I started to go back to sleep, but thought to myself, why am I wide awake and alert? It was strange. I was completely awake. Then right in my backyard, I heard a low, deep growl. That's when I knew something was up. The moment I heard that, I knew. That was why I woke up. I remained quiet and didn't move for the next five to ten minutes, as this thing started to become very active in my backyard. It went from the low growls to heavy breathing. This thing's lungs had to be massive because it sounded the same exact way a horse would if you were standing right next to it. When it breathed through its nose, it sounded more like a horse. But this thing sounded like it was aggressive. I knew it wasn't a horse in the backyard. That wouldn't be possible, but what I saw was very real. It literally ran from my backyard into the dividing fence of my backyard, from my neighbor's backyard, again and again. It made no sense for it to be doing that. It would often stop and sniff around and sneeze very loudly. It sounded like it was right next to my window, and uh, I was on the second floor. I didn't want to look out the window because I thought that there's no way in the world no one else is hearing this right now but me. I thought, this thing is trying to get my attention on purpose. I stayed still in bed without moving, and I was beyond scared. I really thought it was a werewolf, even before I saw it. I always thought that they were real. The guys that lived below me started yelling and screaming, El Diablo! Over and over again, they yelled that. I could hear the thing leaving the backyard, so I hurried to try and get a look at it. When I did, all I saw was its backside. 
This thing was massive, with broad shoulders like a bodybuilder, and it had ears sticking up on its head. It slowly walked away until I lost sight of it. Not intending to mock any religion or beliefs, and I really don't know which group this would be credited to anyway. Wiccans. Druids. Just a psycho. Anyway, I was hiking through a park in central Florida about three years ago. Kind of dense scrub brush. You can only see the trail in front of you. Brush is chest high on both sides. I'm about two miles from the nearest trailhead, and it's around 7 p.m. I had an hour of light left. I intended on setting camp when I found the next clearing. First clearing, I get to as a gator head in the middle with a circle of stones around it. Maybe two, three weeks old. Just a dried skull with scales. Soft tissue was gone. I had seen gator skulls left by poachers before, and I usually ignore it. But it gave me a weird vibe, so I kept walking. About 15 minutes later, and deeper in... I get to another nice-sized clearing. This time, a few dead birds were strung up to some sticks and hanging in a circle like a mobile over a baby crib. Seven or eight small birds, maybe four feet across, had been there for a while. It didn't smell anymore, at least. Still creepy enough to send me on my way. Third time's the charm. Right, wrong. Twenty minutes later, and after taking the side paths to get away from the main trail and hopefully avoid any other displays, I find a fresh one. A deer head on a stick, with sticks scattered around, making four circles around the base of the stick. The blood was splattered all around the sticks, fresh enough for the flies to still be on it. The head smelled rancid. Didn't see the body, but I didn't look for it either. I got out of there. I was dark before I got back to my truck called fish and game the next morning, because the gator and deer would have been taken out of season. Told them what I found, and apparently this wasn't the first time somebody called about animal effigies in that park. Never went back, but I am curious just how many other shrines were out there. Not sure what it is. My girlfriend and I were hiking around western Maryland, and I started getting an eerie feeling, and I seen something following. Stalking us, but it wasn't as big as what I've heard these dogmen to be. Also, there's a little equipment yard where I sometimes work on vehicles, and behind the yard is a cornfield. It had been cut down, and in the middle of this field is an island of trees. While I was working one afternoon, I heard what sounded like fifty wolves. Howling at once, I turned around and seen something crouching down very low to the ground, coming out of the island of trees. Looked a lot like the thing that had been following my girlfriend and I, but that was at least twenty miles away. Also, there's an area nearby where my father told me that he and his friends would see this wolfman thing running next to their vehicle in the 1960s and supposedly had killed a lot of livestock in the area. I came across this article of something called the Snarly Yo. It was on the same mountain my father has all these werewolf stories about. I will try to upload the article for you. The area is around Hagerstown, Maryland.
I was hiking in the Barrington Tops, Australia, New South Wales, Australian state, and stopped at a place called Dead Horse Swamp. Lovely sight. Got a drop toilet there, which is a luxury in a waterfall nearby. Cut to nighttime, and I had downed my fire since it was bushfire season so I could go to sleep. Cut to a few hours later, and I hear rustling and grunting. Thought it might have been a kangaroo or wallaby and shrugged it off. I had stored my food and supplies in the toilet block, which had a lockable door, so it couldn't attract animals, but I figured they must smelt something. The rustling continues, and I hear grunting and shuffling. So being the coward I am, I freeze in my tent and pray that whatever it was doesn't come near me. Well, it did, and I hear this loud, heavy breathing and grunting, followed by heavy footsteps. And at this point, I'm shaking in fear. I start praying to any God that have me and remain as still as I could. The thing went to the opening of my tent, which had a flimsy little zipper to keep whatever it is outside and stopped. So I did what any grown man who is fearing for his life does, and I screamed my lungs out. I hear a stampede of feet run away from the tent, and the rest of the night is quiet. I stayed up all night, and as soon as dawn hit, I made my way to my car and got the F out of there. Probably was a Bigfoot, but gee damn, did I think it was Ivan Milat or Ted Bundy coming to skin me alive. After grad school, I moved into a house that my grandparents owned in rural East Georgia. They would visit every once in a while but for weeks at a time, I was completely alone. This house is in the literal middle of nowhere and is on about 20 acres or so surrounded by woodlands. The property is at the end of an easement off a dirt road, off a rural paved road, off of a state highway. I had a few neighbors, but the nearest house was over a mile and a half away. I wake up one morning to go for a run down the easement to the dirt road when I notice a set of unique, approximately sized, ten footprints going towards my house. I followed them all the way to the carport where they disappeared either onto the concrete or the grass. No one other than me had been at the house in almost two weeks. It had rained a few days earlier, which meant the tracks were discernible and relatively fresh. The door was locked and I was ready to run, so I decided to back, track them, to see where they originated from. I followed them six of a mile down the easement. I followed them eight of a mile down the dirt road to the intersection of the paved road where I lost the trail. They were definitely a one-way set of prints that ended almost a mile and a half down the road at my carport. I began to freak out. I called someone and let them know what I found in case I went missing. I returned to their vanishing point at the carport and attempt to track them through the grass. I'm not a skilled tracker by any means, but I hadn't cut the grass in a while and thought that I could follow them. Turns out I could. They went down the property line and into the woods. I followed them about 20 feet until I came to the creek that runs along the southernmost property boundary. The footprints clearly walked through the mud and into the creek. They didn't come out the other side. I checked up and down the creek side and couldn't find an exit point. Judging from the path the person took, they knew where they were going. There were no stopping points. There were no deviations in the direction. 
no moves in either direction, and no zigzagging. They walked from the paved road in a single direction, down a dirt road, and down an easement, along the edge of my house, down the tree line, and into a creek. Also, did I mention they were barefoot? I spent three months working in Alaska in a remote area about two hours north of Anchorage during the summer five years ago. It was summertime, so the darkest it would get would be considered dusk anywhere else. I often took walks down to the river alone, which was about a three-mile walk from my compound, very secluded and quiet. One evening I wasn't tired and decided to head to the river to see if I could find any wildlife wandering around. I love animals. It was about two long. It was the darkest time of day. The sun wasn't visible, but it wasn't completely dark. When I got to the river, I poked around for a while and listened to my surroundings. Then I heard the most eerie sound of my life. I heard what sounded like the alien ships from War of the Worlds. It was like a trombone sound multiplied by a thousand. It was so loud I covered my ears. There was no construction, no people playing instruments, nothing that could explain what this sound was. Christmas of 2007 was an event that has always stood out in my mind, and now it always will. I was 13 at the time, and that was the first and only year that Dad missed Christmas. He worked as a long-haul truck driver, and we were used to him being gone for weeks or even occasional months at a time. He always made it a point to be home for our birthdays and Christmas, however, but that year was different. Mom was worried when he said he had one final load to deliver before the holiday season. His plan was to make his delivery and then be home on the 23rd, just in time for Christmas, but Mother Nature had other ideas. As fate would have it, his route from our home in Minneapolis to Billings, Montana would take him right into the heart of a looming blizzard along I-94. Snow was falling in bunches at the time, and Dad said he was debating whether or not to pull over for the night in hopes it would clear up. He decided to try and just keep going. When the road made the decision for him, he was only about an hour away from Billings when his truck struck an unexpected patch of ice, causing him to lost control and slide off the road into the median. Thankfully, he wasn't injured, but his truck was wedged in nearly two feet of packed snow. It was around midnight when this happened. He tried everything he could to get the truck out of the snowdrift, but it was no use. Of course, his phone signal was non-existent as well, so he couldn't even call for assistance. The roads were virtually devoid of other travelers by that point as well. He radioed in to a local emergency office, but was told the roads were too hazardous to travel at the moment. In the end, he could do nothing but wait. Meanwhile, Christmas came and went for us, and we didn't hear anything from Dad. Mom was a nervous wreck, although she tried to hide it, while me and my two sisters were just sad that he wasn't there with us. Thankfully, Dad finally called late on Christmas evening. He apologized profusely for not being with us and promised he would get home as soon as possible. He did just that two days later, and we were relieved to have him back. He returned with a bundle of late Christmas gifts, and all was well once more. Dad was different, though. 
He was quiet and appeared as though his mind was focused elsewhere. I didn't question him on it, but I could tell that something was troubling him. Life went on, and Dad never missed another Christmas after that. He, in fact, began just taking the entire month of December off to prevent anything like that ever happening again. I didn't know this at the time, but he later told me that he never drove down I-94 again. He outright refused deliveries that took him along that stretch and would take detours that added multiple hours to his trip if it meant avoiding that spot. Us kids are all grown up now with kids of our own. My son just turned two, and our whole family was once again together over this previous Christmas. We sat around watching as Mom and Dad lovingly spoiled their grandchildren with goodies. I don't think I've ever seen my dad with such a beaming smile. Later that night, when the sugar rush had finally worn off and the kids had gone to bed, Dad and I were left alone on the balcony. We sipped some of his whiskey and puffed on cigars as we got to talking. I'll skip over the bulk of what we talked about, because that's not really why I'm here. Eventually, we started talking about his newfound retirement from truck driving, and I asked him a question which I'd never really asked before. You ever experience anything really creepy on the road? Dad was no stranger to talking about his experiences. He had infamous tales of him getting mobbed by crackheads in Atlanta hitting a cow in Nebraska in the things he saw while driving through Ferguson a few years back during the civil unrest. He was never shy to tell them, but this time he paused. He swished the whiskey around his glass for a moment as if silently debating whether he wanted to tell me. I guess I might as well tell you now. He downed the remainder of his drink and clasped his hands in front of him. You remember the year I missed Christmas? By this point, I had almost entirely forgotten about it. But when he said that a torrent of memories came spiraling back, Yeah, Mom was pissed, I replied. Dad gave a hearty chuckle at that and nodded. Oh yeah, she never let me forget it. That was that crazy blizzard, right? When your truck got stuck, Dad nodded. Yep, damn near flipped my rig that night. Ironically, that snowdrift probably saved my life just as much as it screwed me over. He then paused and broke eye contact as he contemplated his wording. That wasn't the scary part, though. Dad explained that the area he went off the road was essentially a barren wasteland. No cities or gas stations around him, just a winding expanse of road in both directions between dozens of foothills. He again mentioned he had no cell reception and wasn't sure what to do aside from just wait for someone to pass by. After a few minutes, it became apparent that wasn't going to happen. The snow fell in buckets that night, and before long, it nearly reached the bottom of his door. Dad's truck at the time was a Cascadia 125 mid-roof sleeper. He had a full sleeping compartment behind the front seat and provisions to last him a few weeks if necessary. He wasn't too worried about being stranded, at least not at first. After giving up on getting his phone to work, he crawled into the bunk area of the cab and popped a DVD in his portable TV. He figured he may be stuck out there for at least the night, so he might as well just relax until help arrived. He made sure to insist that if he wanted to, he could have probably figured out a way to get his truck out, if he really tried, but he was exhausted and decided to just get some sleep. 
He said he drifted off not long after, only to awake sometime later to complete darkness. The temperature had plummeted, and he instinctually hugged his arms and felt the goosebumps lining his arms. He'd left his truck idling before he fell asleep, but it wasn't running anymore. Confused, he crawled into the front seat to find the keys still in the ignition. He twisted the key, and the engine soon rumbled back to life. But something was wrong. He said the noise of the engine morphed into a gurgling, clanging mess of metal and fluid that produced a god-awful cacophony. His dashboard lit up like a Christmas tree, displaying just about every single warning light the system had. Steam began to pour from the hood vents, and the distinct smell of boiling coolant filled the air. After letting it run maybe ten seconds, he shut it off in fear of doing permanent damage to it. He knew that something wasn't right with Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. ...inside as he contemplated going out into the cold night to see if he could figure out what it was. He bundled himself up tight and popped the hood. He said the night had this almost ethereal silence to it as he stepped out of the cab. His feet crunched in the snow, echoing like crashing thunder when compared to the pervasive silence. He made his way around the front and opened it up, releasing a plume of steam from within. After it dissipated a bit, he leaned in and found something which made him quite confused. Oil and coolant was splashed all over the underside of the hood, with many other parts of the engine covered in gunk as well. Dad climbed off the grill and glanced underneath the carriage, and that's when he found something truly odd. The oil pan was shredded on the bottom of the engine. He said it looked as though someone had chopped it with an axe a couple dozen times. The oil had all spilled out into the snow beneath. Clearly, that was why the engine had been running so rough, but explaining how it happened was another matter entirely. He checked around the area and said it seemed like some of the oil was dripped away from the road and towards the trees. He looked closer and spied what very much seemed like footprints accompanying them, as if the winter night wasn't cold enough that Discovery really tanked his blood temperature. He quickly headed back towards his cab, 
but as he reached for the handle, something stopped him dead in his tracks. Something moved behind the end of his trailer, too quick to make out any physical details. It moved on two legs and was clearly no animal. Dad just froze, his fight or flight instinct seeming to stalemate within him. He thought about calling out, but said that didn't seem like a good idea. After a few seconds of silence, he made a mad dash to his cab and locked the doors behind him. After grabbing the pistol from underneath his seat, he hopped into the rear with his heart racing. He positioned himself where he was able to glance out both side mirrors, but saw no sign of whoever was behind the trailer. The radio, too, was out, and after trying in vain to get it to work, he sat back. It didn't make any sense to him. Even if the engine wouldn't fire up the batteries, should have had enough reserve charge to power the radio for a little while. He tried calling on Biz's cell phone, too, and although managed to get it to ring a few times, it would always just cut out. Hours passed, and not much of anything happened. He dozed off once or twice, but tried his best to stay awake and wait for the sun to rise. The snow had since stopped, but not a single other car had driven by since he had stopped. He figured the pass itself was closed, but hoped someone would been by. Sometime later, he heard a noise emanate from outside. It started as a slight thump with another soon following, then another and another. The sounds gradually grew louder, and his heart lodged in his throat as it grew nearer. Someone was on his trailer, and he didn't know what to do about it. He clutched his pistol tight, aiming it up towards the roof. Just as he was certain the person was about to reach the roof of the cab, the sound stopped. He waited there, pistol trembling in his grip for them to emerge, but they never did. Minutes turned to hours, and he never heard another sound from the roof. He said after a while he was no longer even sure whether he had heard anything to begin with. Eventually, his guard slipped, and the drowsiness took over. He doesn't know if this next part is related. But he's never had anything happen like it, so I figured I'd include it, too. He dreamed as he slept there, but it wasn't a normal dream. He said he remembers walking through a dark forest and viewing it all with incredible vivid detail. He was completely lucid and says to this day, almost 30 years later, it was the most incredibly realistic dream he's ever had. Even looking back on it, he says it felt so real it's hard for him to distinguish it from reality. He seemed genuinely disturbed as he told me about it, too. The forest he was walking through had these massive looming trees that seemed hundreds of feet tall. Twisted roots surrounded their bases, which sprouted from the ground and twisted all over like the tentacles of the kraken. He had to dip and duck around them as he moved, going further but not knowing why. As he made his way through, he started hearing this noise like the ticking of a clock. It got louder as he moved. Then, sure enough, he found the source. A large grandfather clock ticking away in the middle of the bundle of roots. He stopped and stared at it for a moment as it ticked away. The clock's tone reverberated, but began to slow. In a few moments, it had began ticking much slower, and the clock itself began to melt. Suddenly, he saw things emerging in the distance from behind the trees. Horrible twisted creatures like the spawns of hell. The sounds of cackling and snarling swirled around him, and he began to run. He hurtled and leapt through the roots, but didn't make it far. Something struck him hard from behind, knocking him onto his chest. 
He then awoke with a gasp, panting heavily with a cold sweat permeating his entire body. He scrambled to a seated position while on the brink of panic. His heart was throbbing so fast and hard that it ached. He took a moment to compose himself, and the immense relief that overcame him was one of sheer relief. But it did not last. Something moved at his window, and his eyes shot up. There he saw the face staring back at him. He froze as stiff as a corpse and cold as a glacier. Time seemed to stand still then, but finally he found the strength to raise his pistol. He fired without really even thinking. A loud bang reverberated in, and the muzzle flare momentarily disoriented him. He looked up to see a bullet hole in the window, and no sign of the face. After waiting there a few moments, he ventured to the driver's seat and peered out, but there was nothing there. No sign of that thing ever being there. It didn't make sense to him, as he was certain he saw it. What made even less sense was the fact that his phone read that it was only 12.13 a.m. Last he remembered checking his phone, it read 12.08 a.m., and he swears on everything that had to have been at least an hour before he dozed off. By this point in his story, I had to question myself on whether he was pulling my leg. My father is a bit of a prankster for sure, but he's never weaved an elaborate story like this before. He then spent some time glancing around out the windows and ensuring no one else was around. He almost thought he should just leave his truck and start walking back to town, but obviously that was an incredibly dangerous notion that probably would gotten him killed. He stared at his phone for quite a while, watching the minute. Slowly, tick onward, too slowly. He swore time wasn't working as normal. Several times he counted aloud to sixty, doing his best to approximate a minute, but the minute didn't change accordingly. He eventually just kept counting upwards, finding the minute finally changed when he reached 386. You'd think that after all these worrying discoveries that sleep would have been the last thing he wanted, but it wasn't enough to prevent. He said he tried adamantly to resist the urge, but the drowsiness that overtook him was impossible to fight. He found himself walking in the snow, listening as it crunched beneath his feet. A dark and silent forest surrounded him in all directions. It was robotic, as if his body acted of its own accord, while his mind drifted in the doldrums. He could barely see where he was going, but it didn't seem to matter. Suddenly he stopped and seemed to spring back to reality. He glanced around side to side, a sudden terror gripping him. Where was he? Why was he outside of his truck? He wondered. He spun back, but couldn't even see the road behind him. The cold sunk into him, and then he saw it. From further in the woods, a familiar face stared back, pale, gaunt, and inhuman. It crawled on all fours, shimmering and shifting side to side. My father turned the complete other way and ran like hell. Tree branches raked against him as he fled half-blind away from the thing in the woods. Nothing looked familiar and he just continued running aimlessly through the woods, checking behind him periodically to see if the thing was following him. He never saw it or heard it, but he knew it was there. Eventually, he smelled the faint scent of smoke lingering in the air. He followed it, hearing a commotion behind him, and soon came across a small clearing. In the center of it was a log cabin with smoke trickling from the chimney. Seeing no other option, he dashed towards it and knocked on the door. 
Behind him, he could hear odd sounds coming from the woods, and thankfully the door opened a few seconds later. Who are you? What do you want? The voice of elderly man called from within. Dad turned and saw the barrel of a shotgun aimed at his chest. He slowly raised his hands to convey he meant no threat. Please, sir, there's... He said he paused as he thought that certainly this man was going to think he was some lunatic, but he said anyways, there's something out there. The man's furious glance reverted to one of intrigue. He then looked past my dad and out into the forest, his eyes suddenly growing wide. Suddenly he backed up, still aiming the shotgun and my dad while waving him inside. He pointed him over to a chair in the corner. Dad complied and sat as the man locked up behind him. He waited there a couple seconds there, but apparently heard nothing of concern. What are you doing out here? My dad then told him what had happened with his truck and the blizzard. He then told him about the odd occurrences that had happened later on, which culminated in him suddenly sleepwalking through the woods. The man sighed and finally lowered his shotgun. He got my dad some water and took a seat across from him. A lot of weird things in these woods. Dad paused as he waited for the man to continue. The man formally introduced himself as Duncan and said his family had owned that plot of land for nearly 100 years. He said he lost count of how many search parties had come through over the years, as well as thrill-seekers, ghost-hunters, and generally odd people. I saw a face. Dad finally confessed to him. Duncan eyed him curiously. What kind of face? Dad described it much as he had before. And Duncan just shook his head. Well, that's a new one. He let out a sarcastic chuckle then. You hear all kinds of stories. UFOs, Bigfoot, cults. But none of them can ever provide proof. So you don't believe in any of it? My dad asked, only to be countered by Duncan. Of course I do. I've lived out here long enough to know that we humans do not dictate these woods. There are things that lurk in shadows all over the globe, and we may never understand them. But as for what you saw, he paused for a moment, seeming to contemplate as he folded his hands on his lap. There's a group of Native Americans that are rumored to have once lived here, the Apulkery. Ever hear of them? Dad shook his head. Neither had I, but a friend of mine who has since passed told me about him. He was an Arapaho man himself, and said that for generations his people had told tales of these. A pulkery, most other groups feared them, said the things they did were evil, more so than the standard tribal warfare one would expect. People say they held these rituals and experiments, and were rumored that their cruelty was matched only by their intellects. Some people say they weren't even human, but that's neither here nor there. Duncan trailed off once more, taking a sip of tea from his side table. One of the rumors that many people attribute to the apulkery is that of the wrong ones. A lot of names for them, really. Not rights, liars, and uncannies. Things that look human but ain't, and some look less human than others. Long faces, wide mouths, huge eyes. A lot out of variations. Some say they can affect time and space itself and others blame them for a lot of weird disappearances. He paused and took another sip, then chuckled. I can't speak to the validity of all that firsthand, but things for certain. There are a lot of weird disappearances, and no one seems to have an answer for them. 
The air from the room seemed to deflate from his torso, and Dad eyed the curious man. He'd clearly seen a lot over his time, but Dad didn't know how much of his tales to believe. He still doesn't. If all these things are happening, then why do you live out here? Dad finally asked. Duncan reclined in the seat in thought. Dad expected an answer related to his inherited property, but the reality was a bit different. He did, in fact, mention his ancestral home being part of it, but had more to say. If I was twenty years younger, maybe I would leave, but I don't think it'd matter. There ain't a place on earth you could run to if they wanted to get you. Dad said a shiver descended his spine then, and Duncan didn't seem boastful or wild as he spoke, but more as though his realization was just a foregone conclusion. Thankfully, Duncan allowed my dad to stay the night, and in the morning, the two of them made their way back to the road. Luckily, Duncan had a big Dodge diesel that was able to plow through the snow with relative ease. They soon reached my dad's abandoned rig, finding it in even worse state than he'd last seen it the previous night. Multiple tires were slashed, windows were broken, and the engine was absolutely shredded from the bottom. After looking around, though he found nothing had actually been stolen. Duncan gave him a ride into town to get his truck towed, and a week or so later he was finally headed home. So, do you believe in that kind of stuff? I finally asked him after he seemed to be done retelling his story. Well, I'd be kind of stupid not to now. He and I both laughed at that, but clearly he had more he wanted to say. It was a really weird experience for sure but I've always thought that maybe I misremembered it or subconsciously exaggerated it in my mind. Something about it, though, is just so haunting. Like I saw something that night that I really wasn't supposed to see and never want to see again. He just sat there for a moment in silence, and I figured it best not to ask him any more questions. He eventually told me that between the time of him crashing his truck to when he finally made it, into town with Duncan that three entire days had passed. He still doesn't know how to account for that, and apparently Duncan didn't either. There's a lot of unanswered questions to this that he may never get the answer to now. He kept in touch with Duncan over the years, but unfortunately he passed away back in 2019. I love my dad, and it's disconcerting seeing him that way. Confused and terrified, I cannot completely attest to the validity of his story, but I believe him. For many who read this, I'm sure it will just amount to words on a paper or maybe a fictitious story that entertained you for a few minutes, but to me it's a horrific possibility at the very least. If anyone has any experiences like this or theories, then feel free to share them. Whatever the case, you won't catch me anywhere near a 94 in Billings anytime soon. Anyway, this story I'm going to tell you now comes from one summer when I was working with the National Park Service out in Yellowstone. I was lucky enough to spend five years working for the park, and to this day, it is still one of my favorite locations. Now, for those of you who have not been to Yellowstone before, let me just tell you that this park is big. 
so big, in fact, that many park rangers believe that there are hermits who live off the grid in the park year-round in some of the remote places that don't see tourists and visitors and are able to go more or less undetected because there are so many places you could hide. Over the years there, I encountered some really weird stuff in the Yellowstone wilderness that would suggest that this is either true or that there is some strange dark energy at play out there. But the dark energy doesn't confine itself to the park boundaries, as I found out one year. Midsummer, when I was 27, two of my co-workers, who I'll call Nick and Monica instead of using their real names, and I had the same day off and decided to go out to a nearby lake in southern Montana, right outside the northwest corner of the park. Nick used to be a scuba diving instructor and had a ton of gear along with a few wetsuits. So we decided to scuba dive and explore around the submerged ruins in Quake Lake. For those of you who don't know the story of how Quake Lake was formed, here's a quick history. In August 1959, a magnitude 7.3 earthquake struck the area in the middle of the night, causing a large chunk of one of the mountains to fall in a landslide that buried 19 people alive in their sleep and created a dam in the Madison River. This dam resulted in the creation of Quake Lake, as it later was named. Overall, the area affected by the earthquake had a total of 28 fatalities, and damage was reported in a huge radius around the area. The part of all this that the public doesn't know about, however, is the disappearances that started happening after the formation of Quake Lake that had nothing to do with the earthquake and subsequent damage. The government did a very thorough job covering all of it up as to not alarm the public, and most NPS employees don't even know about it unless they are working directly in the area. As a five-year veteran working at Yellowstone, I knew about the strange disappearances and unsolved cases, but I was told under strict order not to tell anyone about them. Basically, once Quake Lake was deemed stable enough for recreational activity, people started going out there to swim, fish, go boating, and do all the other normal things that people do on a lake. However, soon after the lake started getting visitors, people started mysteriously disappearing, all from the same area of the lake. Sometimes they would turn up all the way across the lake, drowned. Sometimes they would never turn up at all. But the thing that made the government cover this all up was that with each body they actually found, the person died with a look of absolute terror on their face and bruises around their legs and ankles that looked like the shape of human hands. The government did countless tests and surveys of the lake to try to determine what this could be from, but they never found anything. So they covered it all up and placed restrictions on areas that could be accessed by the general public. Despite knowledge of the disappearances, Nick, Monica, and I weren't worried about it. Nick assured us that all his diving gear was in top shape. And since Monica and I were both strong swimmers, we didn't give it a second thought. The area that we were going to dive at is called the Underwater Forest. It was given that name because of all the trees you can still see sticking out of the water from when the lake originally formed. We knew there were some underwater ruins close by as well from a cabin that got submerged in the flooding, so we figured that would be a really cool place to dive and explore. So, 
We packed up all of the diving gear in our into Nick's car, hooked his boat up to the trailer hitch, and set out for the lake. It was just about midday when we got there. We had a quick picnic lunch, then started to put our gear on while we digested. Nick gave both Monica and I a quick tutorial on how to use all of the gear, and we did a few test dives next to the boat dock to make sure we were ready. Once we felt good to go, we took off for the side of the lake we were going to explore. As soon as we arrived, we anchored our boat and got ready to jump in. Immediately, I got a bad feeling, like we shouldn't be there, but I brushed it off as nervousness and excitement. I touched the water next to the boat, and it sent chills up my spine. The water in the lake was cold, but this felt really, really cold. I shuddered, then Nick noticed and started making fun of me, so I rolled my eyes and put on my mask. We jumped in the water and started exploring. As soon as I got in the water, all my fears went away. This place was so cool. It was like a whole forest frozen in time, dead, underwater. We had all agreed ahead of time to try to stay near each other, but just in case. Nick had given us all waterproof diving watches so we could keep track of time. We agreed that we would surface every 20 minutes just to check in with each other if we got separated. Naturally, within about five minutes. We were all off on our own, but we all surfaced on time for the first two check-ins. However, on the third check, in Monica didn't surface on time. Nick and I waited a couple minutes, thinking that maybe she just didn't look at her watch. After about ten minutes, we started to panic. We made a plan to stick together to look for her, and immediately dove back down into the water. We searched for about twenty minutes, and there was no sign of her. We decided to return to the boat and radio into the marina to get help, and within a matter of minutes, they had sent a search and rescue team out to help find her. Every single minute, waiting felt like an eternity. Then suddenly, one of the search and rescue divers surfaced with Monica's unconscious body. All of her diving gear had been torn to shreds and was just barely hanging on to her. The search and rescue boat sped off back to the marina so Monica could be airlifted to the nearest hospital. Nick and I closely followed behind in his boat. Once we got back to the marina, we were questioned by the cops and then released. They told us where they were taking Monica, and Nick and I made plans to go visit her the next morning. Neither Nick nor I was able to sleep that night. We sat on the couch together at his apartment, watching movies until the sun came up, and then we got in his car and headed for the hospital where Monica was. She was asleep when we got there, so we decided wait until she woke up. We asked one of the nurses if she had said what happened, and the nurse said she hadn't spoken a single word to anyone since she arrived. She also said that Monica would start to freak out if anyone tried to touch her ankles. Hearing this made the blood drain from my face. Once the nurse left the room, I slowly and gently lifted up the blanket by Monica's feet and looked. There were deep, dark red and purple bruises all over her calves and ankles in the shape of human hands as if people had been grabbing at her and dragging her by the bottoms of her legs. The feeling of the blanket moving immediately woke Monica up, and she jolted up in a panic with the whitest eyes I have ever seen. As soon as she realized it was just Nick and I, she started crying. I sat down next to her on the bed and just held her. 
I asked her if she wanted to talk about what happened, and once she calmed down, what she said, I will never forget. I saw a little girl. She was standing upright on the lake floor as if she was outside on dry land. She motioned to me to follow her, so I did. She was running through the trees, and once we got to the edge of the underwater forest, there was a cabin with a light on inside. She pointed at the door and then ran inside. I was terrified but curious, so I followed her in. As soon as I opened the door and entered the cabin, the little girl turned to me, smiled, and turned out the light. The cabin door swung shut and locked. I couldn't open it back up as hard as I tried. I swam to one of the windows and started hitting it until a glass cracked. I tried to squeeze through the window, but the oxygen tank was too big to fit. I felt something grab at my ankle, and I turned around, and there was the little girl, although she now was floating in the water, and she looked like a corpse. Her skin was gray and falling off her bones, and her eyes were solid white. Out of nowhere, two more of these people appeared. They looked like her parents, perhaps. They started grabbing at me and pulling me back into the cabin, tearing at my wetsuit with their nails and teeth. I fought as hard as I could and tore off my oxygen tank and started fighting them off with it. I managed to kick them off of me just as I was able to squeeze through the broken window, and I swam as fast as I could away from the cabin without turning back. Within a matter of seconds, I was so out of breath that I passed out, and the next thing I knew, I was in the hospital. Monica said that she told the search and rescue officers everything she told us. We were told that they did a thorough search operation for the cabin Monica said she saw, but they claimed that they found nothing. I'm not sure what exactly happened that day in the lake, but I do know that what I saw on Monica's legs, plus the fear in her eyes when she told Nick and I her story, I believe her. I've never gone back to that lake, but I did hear from a co-worker that they now have that area strictly closed off. Maybe they did find something after all. While I was on duty a few years back, we had to respond to a call about hikers that were late. It was pretty routine. Just two young kids who had gotten lost where they were going. They were actually from out of state, so they weren't used to this rain. We found them again before nightfall. They were pretty freaked out. They said they'd been hearing this weird noise coming out of the woods around them. They'd been scared into this spot, actually. They said the noise had gotten closer and closer and was with them for most of the day. They didn't know what it was, but they were pretty determined to get out of there. We escorted them back to base, but I knew we were being followed the whole time. Something in the woods behind us was chasing them. It was staying just out of the light. I had my rifle on it the whole time, but I never saw anything out there. I know I heard something, though. It was breathing hard and making these strange noises. I kept looking behind me, but all I could see were silhouettes of trees in the sky. I didn't see what was making the noise until we were almost at the ops when I found it. It was big and built low to the ground. Then it got down and began running on all fours. It had a very featureless face, unlike anything I'd seen before. I don't know what it was, but I'm not sure I want to know. Another night, I was working the graveyard shift alone. We got a call over the radio that somebody had seen something large and unknown. And we were all pretty tired this night. 
Most of us had been on duty for 20 hours already. The area this thing went into was a mix of densely forested and open fields. The guy who saw the thing said it kind of looked like a large black blur moving through a field at an incredible speed. So my partner and I were looking down at the edge of the wood line, and we heard something come out near us. It sounded big, whatever it was, very big. We switched with another team after about an hour. They had to go deeper. We took up on their first post. But my partner told me to go over a small hill, giving us a better vantage point on the forested area beyond it. As I'm walking toward where she told me to go, she gets on the radio and starts screaming at everyone to get out. She's yelling about how this big black thing is coming right at us, but I don't hear it. I finally see her come over the hill towards me, and she tells me this thing was chasing after us. She said it looked like a hairy large dog with large yellow eyes, but that it had legs just like a man, not hawks like a dog. It had caught up with her before she could get down the other side of the road, so she came back up here to avoid it. The rest of my team who had seen it were all white as sheets, especially my partner who looked warmed over. None of them could really tell us what we saw, and we never really did find out, at least not from them. It was a heck of a night.